I've definitely heard of colleagues and, and for one or two of my patients, this has been true that this has increased the interest in 211. Uh, that's uh, on-demand prep. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the November 4th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. Today's learning objective is to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on HIV testing and HIV viral loads in people living with HIV. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. This is the second part of his interview with Dr. Matthew Spinelli, Assistant Professor in the Division of HIV, Infectious Disease, and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and San Francisco General Hospital. They will be discussing both the direct and indirect impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the HIV epidemic, as well as people living with HIV. Dr. Alwater, Dr. Spinelli, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Faith. And uh, our topic is the pandemic, but also the HIV epidemic and its uh, direct as well as indirect effects on people. I'm delighted to have Dr. Spinelli here joining us for the second of the broadcasts now. The focus uh, of these next few minutes are what are some of the indirect effects? Um, you know, so much of our healthcare system had been put on hold uh, to focus on people who are infected with the novel coronavirus. But as we're getting back, even as we get back into some semblance of normalcy, at least for the time being, it's clear that uh, people have changed their behavior and health systems have changed their access and so on. Uh, what's your view, at, particularly uh, for people that may be living with HIV, what's been the impact on this group in terms of the pandemic, especially uh, who are so dependent on chronic disease management? Great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And I think that's such an, an important question that many of us are, are quite worried about. I do think telemedicine has been one way that we have been able to cushion some of these impacts on our patients, although telemedicine is not always the same as an in-person visit. And uh, we get into issues with the digital divide, uh, particularly I work in a public hospital and, and my patients are either uninsured or on public insurance. And Many of them do not have access to phones uh, or, or at least having a phone plan to, for me to be able to call them, particularly our homeless population. So I, I'm really worried about that group and we're already seeing uh, worse viral suppression overall in our clinic, but uh, magnified among the homeless population. In terms of how we try to attenuate that, I think 
keeping some in-person visits open is important. And we initially were probably about half and half. I think um, it does seem like our the in-person visits have become a bit more crowded. And we, we have a drop-in clinic for people uh, struggling with housing security, and uh, that has actually stayed pretty stable. So I'm hoping that that's helped to attenuate the impacts of the epidemic, but I'm still very worried. In terms of the HIV epidemic as a, as a whole, things could go in a variety of ways. We're certainly worried that the economic insecurity and the uh, decreased access to care, particularly for things like PrEP, other uh, HIV prevention measures could result in a, in a step back in our, in our attempt to end the HIV epidemic and, and the 1990 uh, goals. You know, it's, it's possible that social distancing could have the opposite effect. And, and in fact, that's, I think I was interviewed by a newspaper uh, in, uh, in France and they were like, wow, this is going to be great for the HIV epidemic and, and really help us get things under control. And I was like, well, that's, unfortunately, that's not the characteristic of, of the HIV epidemic in most of the world that that would be the case. So quite worried about that. Uh, in terms of actual data, 90% decrease in testing in our uh, jurisdiction, decreased viral load monitoring, decreased STI testing, PrEP visits way down, uh, some of the best data from, from Boston and the Fenway uh, Clinic. Th those are the concerns. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think, um, Matthew, those are, we share in Baltimore. Uh, we have, you know, similar populations with a, a fair percentage of people that don't have access to telemedicine. And, you know, we only have half the visits physical in person because of spacing issues and safety issues, both for our staff and our patients. So it's been very difficult. And uh, as you point out, I think, you know, we were just trying to help grapple with the opioid crisis. Um, I think, you know, there's been quite a spike in acute hepatitis C cases along with HIV and um, uh, not in the boomer population, but in the 20 and 30 year olds. And many of these uh, programs, which are just sort of getting steam have been sidelined. And a lot of those forces actually may even be uh, exacerbated because of a lot of the um, mental health issues that come along as we all struggle with the pandemic on this. So uh, I think uh, you raised some really important points. I think that the testing is one that if you don't know, you can't intervene is such a, an important one because most of those uh, clinics and you know pop-up tents and other things that some cities have used to encourage uh, testing uh, have really been sidelined. Uh, even in our emergency room, we used to you know, really have programs focused on quick oral testing for HIV for any, anyone that wanted it or didn't have one on record. And that's sort of been sidelined as we're dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, I totally agree. Not just in resources, I also think cognitively people are not thinking about it as much anymore. Uh, Certainly I've seen cases of PCP diagnosed as likely COVID-19. Uh, that's happened twice in my hospital that I, that I was aware of. I'm certain that the HIV testing is down even outside of uh, targeted programs. Um, I totally agree. And, and uh, your, your point about the opioid uh, epidemic uh, resonated with me as well. We've seen an increase in deaths related to overdoses in our city. Yeah, I'm worried there will be a lot of impacts that are, that are hard to quantify right now. Yeah, and this is worldwide. I mean, the Gates Foundation had uh, really put forward their uh, morbidity and mortality figures, and they really feel the pandemic will set back uh, many countries two to 10 years for tuberculosis, malaria control, 
it's just really a, a necessary but diversion of resources really are going to uh, be a step back at uh, a lot of uh, levels. One other interesting aspect, you know, many, many of us have been impressed that uh, this coronavirus does uh, more than just tickle the immune system. Um, there's often leukopenia for people with severe uh, presentations and, and some uh, consequences that really suggest that perhaps there's uh, some T regulatory cell dysfunction in people or, or it's unmasking difficulties and in innate immune control. For example, uh, some critically ill patients end up with mold infections like aspergillus. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, have you seen cases where that dovetails perhaps with uh, uncontrolled HIV? Or do you feel uh, if people do acquire it uh, in certain circumstances that, uh, for example, advanced AIDS, that uh, disease might be worse or there might be more opportunistic infections? Uh, any sense on that? I'm worried about that. I, I do think the transient uh, leukopenia. I've heard of a case of a, a not at not at UCSF actually at a Johns Hopkins uh, of someone who had a high CD4 count, but in the context of COVID, presented with thrush. And so that I think there are, as we see more and more cases of this, we'll we'll learn more and more. And uh, I do think there's an, a very important role for the translational scientists to enroll enroll people who are recovering from from COVID-19, both with and without, uh, living with and without HIV, to try to understand some of these impacts. Um, and we talked about in our last session about a hint that severity is greater among people with a lower CD4 count. So I, sh I, I think it's a, of incredible interest, both scientifically and also for public health uh, for our patients. Have any of these measures sort of changed your prescribing habits at all? And I, I just sort of uh, mean just uh, because we're not maybe getting CD4 counts as much or there's fewer clinic visits uh, for certain patients. Any, any sense that you've adapted your own practice to help these patients in different ways? I think there's growing data that in general, we should give our patients 90 day prescriptions and not force them to go to the pharmacy for each, every 30 days. And you know, the, the more barriers we create, even outside of a pandemic are, um, you know, they may have small effects, but they can add up on a, on a population. So yeah, definitely giving 90-day prescriptions and more refills, and that's that's been a, a guidance from a variety of uh, public health um, agencies. This is related to prescribing, but thinking a lot about my patient's mental health and um, and substance use, and you know, trying to start people extra hard on substance use treatment during this time. So that, that would be another example. In terms of prep. I've definitely heard of colleagues, and, and for one or two of my patients, this has been true that this has increased the interest in two one one. That's uh, on demand prep. I think it makes a lot of sense if you're um, having less sexual contact during this time. But of course, uh, sexual behavior can be unpredictable, so it, it's good to have a backup to to protect uh, our patients who are exposed to HIV. You know, that would be a, something that I think uh, it would be good for public health departments to. To, to really get the word out there about 211. It hasn't been um, supported so much by the CDC, but certainly more and more uh, health departments are supporting, including my own. Yeah, no, I, I think some of these adaptations are very important because I have a sense the coronavirus will be with us for quite a while, uh, perhaps uh, incorporated as a, a regular illness. And whatever it becomes, either because of immunizations or or exposures and herd immunity, you know, there's going to be populations where unless if this virus 
changes its uh, genetic makeup and, and it affects, uh, you know, this can still be a serious disease, I think, for, for uh, years and decades to come. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll have a vaccine that has an impact. So many of these vaccines uh, are really novel uh, approaches to them uh, that really haven't been uh, tested uh, test as much, including viral vectors. Just uh, speculation, purely. What, what, when would you worry with your patients with some of these viral vector vaccines? Uh, because uh, uh, are you going to not use them at all? I mean, I, I have a feeling we won't have guidance out there or, or one that's based on very limited evidence. And I know this is purely speculative and hard to answer, but uh, from the landscape of the viruses, uh, of the uh, vaccines that you see that are in phase three trials, are there any kinds that you feel like you're gonna be more comfortable for if they're approved or less? Yeah, I think you raise a, an important point and I, and I agree, we're probably not gonna have guidance and we're gonna have to sort this out as a, as a field. Um, I'm not worried about my patients with CD4 counts that are above 200 and are virally suppressed. I think that's a group where over a variety of vaccines, it, you, we, have, we have more and more safety data. Uh, yeah, I do worry about different adverse effects, uh, particularly for, for our patients who have dysregulated immune systems. So it's something that I, I, I should think about more, actually. Um, no, I think we all will, and, and probably will be in a fairly data-free zone for a while. I, I did have a little bit of comfort just because of the mass immunizations with the vesicular stomatitis virus that was um, uh, made into a viral vector for the Ebola vaccine. So mm -hmm. that was administered uh, to hundreds of thousands of people in the DRC and, and also in other countries in West Africa over the last six years. And granted, it wasn't a placebo. You might remember all the controversy because it wasn't an RCT. They were just using it. And here right. we are in the, the pandemic arguing that we need the phase three for sure. Um, uh, so it, it's sort of interesting that that's an FDA approved vaccine for less than a year uh, that we have, but that was uh, just based really on uh, single arm use uh, in ring immunization patterns. But, but you know, obviously there were HIV infected people and so on uh, that got the vaccine unknowingly. And, uh, you know, yeah. we'll see. You know, and I think there's some efforts trying to see if there's been effects and so on, but of course, much harder to understand. Yeah, and I think you you raise a, a vaccine policy, an important vaccine policy point. You know, I I was glad to see the the newer FDA uh, guidance that 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 the, the phase two trial should not end if an EUA is is offered because these questions are going to persist and it, it, it all the more important to make sure we're enrolling diverse populations uh, in, in, in the developing world in these vaccine trials so that, you know, we can accrue with sufficient people living with HIV in these trials. And, you know, initially not allowing people with HIV in the trials was concerning. So, um, right. yeah, I think there's important yeah, and, and, and I think that, that's something to close on because, uh, of course, manufacturers are conservative. They don't want to go to high-risk groups potentially uh, with their products and want to make sure it works. So it's always transplant patients, HIV, um, the disadvantaged, uh, uh, certain racial groups that don't fill up early. And I, people are aware of this, but I think we're still going to be stuck with really not knowing and trying to really use inference and expert opinion to try to decide, should we give a vaccine to a patient or not, uh, especially in our HIV clinics? 
Well, Dr. Spinelli, I really wanted to thank you for joining us. Lots of interesting topics, and of course, uh, many which we definitely need to revisit regularly as this pandemic wears on. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Spinelli, thank you again for your time. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.